Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. Now, this is an episode from the Research in Action mini-series, where I interview a researcher from the Mathematics Education Centre at Loughborough University about their chosen area of interest and the implications for maths teaching and learning. But... Just before we dive into today's episode, a quick word from our lovely sponsors of this series. Cue the fancy music. This Loughborough University mini-series of podcasts is kindly supported by Oxford Revise GCSE Maths. The Oxford Revision Series is designed to be straightforward, visual and accessible to ease the stress of revision, something that's perhaps needed more so this academic year than ever before. Now, I love the way these guides are set out. You've got one topic per page, meaning students can just dip in and get cracking. You've got nine to one grades on every question so students can monitor their progress. And you've got loads of lovely diagrams and visual memory tips to help boost retention. My favourite bits, though, are the Strive for Five and Climb to Nine pages in the Foundation and Higher books because they provide dedicated support for the problem areas identified in examiners' reports. Now, you can save 50%, yep, 50% on Oxford Revised GCSE Maths today with the Revision Guide and Workbook at just £2.50 each. Simply visit Oxford's website at oxfordsecondary.com forward slash Oxford Revised GCSE Maths, and there's a link to that in the show notes page, or speak to your educational consultant who can tell you more. Today's episode of the podcast, I was lucky enough to speak to Christoph Sipora. Christoph obtained his diploma and PhD in psychology at, and this is another of those names that I'm going to struggle with, Jagiolian University Krakow in Poland, and afterwards he spent four years as a postdoc researcher at the Department of Psychology at the University of, and it's this one again, Tübingen in Germany. Apologies for this. Christoph has joined the Centre for Mathematical Cognition as a lecturer at Loughborough in April 2020. Now, this was a fascinating and very fun conversation. We discussed numbers and space, and this blew my mind, how people visualise relatively small and large numbers differently in different sides of the brain. And then we talked about the magnitude of numbers. And then, if that wasn't enough, counting chickens. Yep, not humans counting chickens, like one, two, three chickens, but actually chickens doing some counting themselves. Now, I'll be back with a few of the things that I've been thinking about since speaking to Christoph, but for now, let's get cracking. Okay, Christoph. 
Christoph, so we start the podcast as we always do with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favorite number and why? Uh, well, to start with, I'm uh, not a mathematician and never claimed to be. My background <laughs> is in uh, cognitive psychology. So uh, yeah, just keep that in mind during the conversation. And as regards my favorite number, for some reasons, I could think of number seven, but it's not because of its numerical properties, but uh, rather about its like historical, let's say, and cultural meaning that it's like the perfection and so on. Nice. The perfection of seven. I like the one. Very, very good. Um, what about your favorite topic in maths as a student? Uh, yeah, again, uh, my uh, last, let's say, formal learning of math took place in my high school, so it was really long ago. Uh, <laughs> but I remember that I really enjoyed constructions in geometry. So this was like very nice to like build the, the, the geometric figures and so on. I, I had really uh, great fun with that. And I also liked uh, systems of equations, also quite simple ones, but uh, but this like... Uh, learning the different methods of how to how to find the, the the unknowns. This was something that I liked quite a lot. Fantastic. And final speed dating question: What job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education and research? Yeah, well, uh, during my studies, I had a side job as a tour guide, so <laughs> <laughs> I found myself quite well there. So, yeah, I think this would be an alternative uh, career option for me. Uh, whereabouts were you a tour guide? Uh, so I was working for a... I'm, I'm originally Polish, so I, I spent my time until end of my PhD in Poland, and I worked in the travel agency. And these were shuttle bus services from Poland to Mediterranean area, like Croatia, Montenegro, uh, Greece, Bulgaria, uh, then also once to Spain. And I was just in charge of like looking after the, the tourists during the travel and so on. It was tiring, but on the other hand, very fun experience, I would say. Wow. That's great. We've, we've never had that one on, on the show before. That's, that's very good. Um, okay. Well, um, next off, Christoph, could you just give listeners a bit of an overview of your career to date? Uh, where did it all begin for you and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, so this is also quite a uh, quite funny story, I guess. <laughs> I started my uh, my university in Krakow, which is like very close to place where I was born. I was born in Krakow itself, and then uh, uh, then was commuting to high school there, and then to my university. I thought of studying psychology, also not it was not super well informed, let's say. Uh, <laughs> idea i i thought that it may be interesting i got one book from library in my high school i read it and i thought oh this sounds really cool i i'll give it a try and then uh i was interested in experimental psychology and in my one of my classes on uh, third year of my studies uh, we were to read a paper about number processing about numerical cognition about the phenomenon that i'm still working on all the time and then i thought <laughs> hmm i like it and then I just started, let's say, pursuing it. No one at the, at the institute was actually working on number processing, so I was kind of uh, lonely there. <laughs> <laughs> then, uh, then again, I did another, let's say, uh, from perspective of nowadays, naive thing, because I just looked at the papers about this phenomenon that I read, and I just wrote... Uh, huge amounts of emails to corresponding authors of these papers that I would like to do PhD with them. Uh, <laughs> some of them actually replied. 
it didn't work out with PhD, but then I I ended up in a conference in uh, Bresanone, it's uh, northern Italy, where like a group of people who are actually working on this number processing topics from cognitive psychology or neuropsychology perspective. So they were gathering and it was really a possibility to meet the, the authors of the papers that I was reading in past years. And then I, I set up my collaboration with, uh, with a professor from Germany, Hans Christoph Nurk. And then uh, I started my PhD in Poland and like having this remote, remote link to, uh, to Professor Nurk in, uh, in Tübingen in Germany. Uh, and then we published a paper together and it worked somehow. And when I was finishing my PhD, we got funding that I could, could get a a uh, postdoc in uh, in Germany with with this professor uh, in Tübingen. I spent there four great years. Uh, it was an excellent time, but I knew that due to like job market situation there, there is no possibility for me to stay there. Even though I liked it a lot, mm. it was just not possible to get a permanent position. And then another lucky situation that when I was kind of eligible to apply for permanent positions due to my let's say seniority, if you can call it like that. <laughs> um, there was a opening of Center for Mathematical Cognition at Loughborough University. Uh, I knew uh, people who got funding to open this, uh, this institution from some conferences, but we were not, let's say, really uh, close or collaborating uh, or stuff like that. But then I had opportunity to talk to them uh, during the conference and uh, another friend of mine actually forced me uh, to, to <laughs> promise her that I will that I will apply for this position because she thought that it's really uh, like a good one for me and I, there will be no such a chance uh, any soon. I was kind of <laughs> hesitant, but, but yeah, then I thought, okay, maybe it's really the time I should at least give a try. Um, yeah, and I ended up in Loughborough, starting my position for, on first of April this year. Fantastic! And we were just saying it's a it's a very strange time to start, isn't it, Christoph? You must have have you met all your colleagues or, uh, or not? Yeah, uh, well, actually, I arrived here on twelfth of March, uh, so I planned to have like two weeks to somehow settle in to. Uh, search for proper apartment because I I ended up in kind of temporary uh, temporary room in the shared house so it was not the mm. most comfortable situa situation also given the amount of stuff I brought with me from Germany <laughs> uh, so it was all packed uh, and the plan was to spend like two first weeks to uh, <laughs> to settle in. and we had actually one in-person meeting uh, during this week this just short after my, my arrival. Uh, so I met all my colleagues then uh, in person, uh, which was very, very nice. But then a few days later, the strict lockdown was imposed and I managed to get a an, like, proper apartment only in August. So it also took, took a while. 
Jeez. But wow, but yeah, you set you settled in now, and hopefully things will go back to normal. Yeah, 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 it's it's normalizing in a, in a sense. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, just before we start talking about your your chosen area of research, um, a question I always ask my guests is to describe a, a favorite failure. So I wonder if you could pick a moment either from your your research or, or any part of your professional life. But I'm looking for something that didn't go according to plan and what you learned from the experience. Yeah, oh, well, actually, I was thinking of it. And if I was to play a philosopher here, I would say that most of failures in, in academia do not leave so much space for learning because the most oh. typical um, typical uh, experience of failure is not super spectacular. You apply for funding for a grant, you don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> there is no strict rule on why people get it and why they don't. As an anecdote, I can tell that one private institution funding research in Germany, um, let's say, made a randomized trial that some of the proposals are given to the committee to make a ranking, and some of them just pass early screening whether it makes like roughly some sense and then they make a lottery selecting which one gets the funding <laughs> and it turned out that deliveries on both groups were very similar with even a small advantage of those made or selected via lottery so <laughs> so i mean here you just apply for funding you don't get it it's a failure it's more dependent on whether the the reviewers were favorable or not, whether they fully understand your idea or not, whether uh, the other grants were just so amazing that there was just no space for you to be funded. Uh, so you just try and you, you don't get it. You <laughs> apply for a job and then sometimes they don't even invite you for an interview. Yes. And then like, I don't know whether it's any sort of learning opportunity in a sense, um, same true for, for papers. Like you submit a paper, you get the rejection. And then, yeah, well, it's rejected. Maybe you get some feedback. Sometimes it's a feedback, very like a very good one, which, which really helps you improve your work. But sometimes it's just a matter of taste, so to say, how you phrase it, how you formulate things. Uh, so um, can you hear me? I can, yeah. I'm yeah, just thinking, I'll my, tell you what. Yeah, yeah, my it's, computer it's, it's, went to sleep, sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's a, it's, it's a good attitude, though, Christoph. I mean, it is a good learning experience in the sense that you, you don't let it get you down too much, yeah. right? You, you just say, you know, it's it might might just be out of my hands. There's, there's not a lot I can do about it. Yeah, so I think that the only thing you can really learn is that you should just uh, learn to handle the rejections and also appreciate as hard as it is you just need to appreciate that uh, there is really huge amount of, of randomness in all these situations. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Fantastic. But one right. anecdote maybe here about the spectacular one. Uh, when submitting one paper, I spent really few hours to adjust the formatting to the, uh, to the requirements of the journal. So it took me maybe like three or four hours because they were really peculiar about stuff. I clicked the submit button, then I had a meeting with my group leader, came back after 40, min 40 minutes and already got a desk rejection because the paper didn't fit the scope of the journal, according to editors. So. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. 
Uh, see, it's one side of, of professional life. I've never experienced this. It must be, yeah, a continual thing of applying for grants, submitting papers and so on. And I guess it's, 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 it's kind of like an author submitting things to a publisher. You just, you've just got to get used to the rejections and try not to take it too personally. But it must, must, be, must be difficult, Christoph. Yeah, it is. Like... <laughs> well, I... I... Sorry. No, I'm going to say, well, we'll, we'll move away from failure to, to something a bit more positive there. Let, let's, let's talk about uh, your chosen area of research. So what, what would you like to talk about today, Christoph? Uh, yeah, so I'm uh, basically working on how the human mind links space and the numbers. And what is the reason for that? So why do we observe that people somehow associate, um, for instance, small numbers with left side of space, large numbers with right side of space? And the other question, which is really kind of getting uh, more and more traction, is how can we harness it in education or whether we can do it? So far, it's kind of uh, blurred and inconsistent. And uh, to be honest, I'm I like my PhD was more focused that it's not linked to math skills, but we still observe this phenomenon in, uh, in cognitive psychology. Now it's getting maybe more clear when it can be relevant, when it's not. But yeah, I still think it makes some sense just also to inform uh, teachers and practitioners which uh, phenomena in psychology, in processing of of numbers in, in our case, have some translation to education and which should maybe in most of the time just stay in, stay in the lab, help researchers understand maybe more general principles of mind, uh, but they don't find so good translation to the, to the classroom practice. Wow. Well, l- let me tell you something here, Christoph. So when, when Colin Foster sent me through kind of a, a bit of a, a description of each of the 10 guests for this series and their areas of interest... I read yours and I thought to myself, I do not know a single thing about this. And I thought I am going to be completely out of my depth here. So I'm going to be asking you some very silly questions throughout this this conversation just to try and get myself up to speed. So my, my first question is, uh, what, what do you mean by by space, if that's not a silly question? So so people see small numbers in the, the left side of space, did you say? Uh, yeah, so maybe starting with very uh, old uh, study, like showing the, or ideas showing that numbers and space are some link, somehow linked. Uh, you can find it even in uh, philosophy of Immanuel Kant, who somehow referred to numbers and space as somehow linked. And then uh, actually Francis Galton, uh, in one of his uh, studies, he just sent a questionnaire to people asking them how they visualize numbers. And several of them had or provided him some some linear representations. Sometimes these were straight lines, sometimes these were more, let's say, elaborated shapes like spirals and stuff like that. Uh, So there was an idea that people somehow link numbers to space. What we do now and what I'm mostly working on is a phenomenon called SNARK. Uh, It's abbreviation for Special Numerical Association of Response Codes. And this is a very uh, tricky phenomenon because you see that this link between space and numbers is there, even though you don't ask it directly. So for instance, I would ask you, 
to just sit in front of the computer, put your uh, your fingers on on keys, for instance, A and L. So one is like to the left side of the keyboard, the other one also is on the right side of the keyboard. And then I would show you the numbers, uh, single digit numbers like two, seven, nine, and so on. And your task would be to, as fast as possible, press the button, uh, one button telling that uh, if, if the number is odd and the other one when it's even. Okay, then, so like A, A if it's odd and L if it's even and, and so on. Yeah, and then okay. I would switch it uh, in the middle of experiment that the odd would be again this time <laughs> the other one so that we have the very precise <clears throat> sub-second, so to say, like millisecond accuracy uh, reaction times for each number and with each hand. And then okay. when, we, when we analyze the data, when we aggregate them, we would see an advantage in reaction times for left-hand left-hand side responses to small magnitude numbers, and right side for large magnitude numbers. And remember, you're joking. You're joking. Is that, is that right? Yeah. And the interesting thing is that it's not about your whatever conscious awareness of where you place your numbers. If I ask you to imagine them, no. And you don't even like answer the question about the magnitude. You are telling whether it's odd and even. And if we use numbers one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, nine, the uh, magnitude and parity are orthogonal. So they are kind of not not to be confounded in a sense that uh, that they are independent. You have like small number and large number being odd, and small number and large number being even. So it's not only that you link the numbers with space, but also while seeing the number, your mind already automatically processes it, refers to magnitude, even if you're not, not asked to, to do it in the task. Wow. Right. I've got a number of questions for you, Christoph. This, this has blown my mind um, a little bit here. So in terms of when you, when you talk about magnitude of numbers and, and small and large, are we, are we, is, is the cutoff point kind of, five is is that what like less than five is small more than five is large or do is it is it different for different people uh actually here it's it's uh, it's not about uh different being different for different people but it just depends on a relative magnitude of number within the set you are using so for instance if i just use numbers one two three four then you would be responding to three and four as if they were like large numbers. So you would have oh. some right-hand advantage, but if we use numbers three, four, five, six, then you would have rather left-hand advantage for these like numbers three, four. So wow. this, is, this is tricky. And, and this, this phenomenon replicates very well. You can very easily observe it in very different setups. We once did an online study. We tested over 1,000 participants, and we found the effect quite easily, even though you might think that there are some distractions while people doing uh, doing it online and so on. So this is very robust. But then I can tell you maybe another phenomenon, which is, to me, even more puzzling. <laughs> okay, so, God. <laughs> uh, it's called numerical distance effect. And this one is even... Uh, even more robust, so to say. So very similar setup. You have like two keys and you are asked to tell whether number is smaller or larger than five. Okay. And then uh, you would be faster in responding to numbers which are far apart from five, like one and nine, while numbers four and six 
would be responded to slower. Right. And this links to uh, some phenomena in um, Gestalt psychology, so uh, that were first observed in uh, in case of physical objects. That, for instance, to compare two lines, people it took people longer to distinguish between two lines which were kind of close to each other mm. in a sense of length than when they were like very small versus very large. Yes. And you can think of that, yeah, well, maybe it's just that people don't fully understand the numbers. Maybe it's, yeah, well, some sort of artifact. And maybe if someone is educated, it disappears or so. But actually, this year, we, we published a paper where we asked to do this numerical distance effect, measure the numerical distance effect in professional mathematicians. So these were people <laughs> who... Uh, who were like really close to obtaining PhD in mathematics. <laughs> and, and the effect was really robust. Each of them revealed the effect. And then you can say that, yeah, well, mathematicians. But it's still, you can translate it maybe <laughs> to telling that it's also for mathematicians harder to compare four to five than to compare one to five. And you can see it at, at the level of reaction times. And this wow. really puzzles me. <laughs> Jeez, right, okay. Let, let, I've, I've just been scribbling down questions here, Christoph. So, so let me start with this. This may be a, a really silly question, but I, I don't really understand what, what this left side and right side is. Is this is this of the brain? Are these physical areas, or is this some kind of abstract concept? Uh, it's it refers rather to physical area in a sense that uh, in one study. Uh, they actually asked people to respond in this task, uh, in the snark task, with crossed hands. So then you have like uh, you are operating right uh, right button with your left hand and the left uh, button with your right hand. Wow. And then usually what you find is that actually uh, you still have the reference rather towards space than to than towards hand. So you are like faster with the left sided button even if you operate it with right hand it also works. Oh, oh so it's not right okay so it would be the kind of location of the key as opposed to which yes. hand you use. Oh, yep. right. yes and it also works if you use like two fingers of the same hand it also works it also works for some other like one study was actually using like bipedal responses so the participants were responding with their feet or with some like uh, other researchers who were measuring uh, gaze, so like how fast uh, people were able to like move their eyes either towards left or right <laughs> in response to numbers. So it's not not dependent on specifically hands, and it seems to be related to sort of external space, if I may say say frame it this way. But it's not about kind of like a sides of the brain but rather sides of the external space that we are operating in i would say wow and and you mentioned it's it's a relative thing it's not the ab kind of absolute magnitude of the numbers it's it's where they are re it's it's their their magnitude relative to 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 the domain of numbers that's being used um how how long does it take to kind of for participants to to get a sense of the domain, if if that makes sense? Does it do, does this effect only kind of kick in once participants have observed the full domain of numbers? Do, does does that make sense? 
Yeah, well, it's a very good question, but actually uh, also really hard to answer in a sense that uh, you don't calculate this effect uh, by just looking at single reaction times. So for it to be kind of detectable, you would need to uh, have at least like five reactions with each hand with each number. And then it yes. gets more stable if you have like around 20 to 30 repetitions. So then you have like 480 times, for instance, you need to press the, the button by seeing the number. And then, and then, of course, if you have such a setup, then participants quite quickly get sort of, uh, let's say, impression on what the number set you are using because they are looking at these numbers and it's i cannot think of uh of setup which would make it technically possible to check when they let's say like calibrated to this or yes. that set that's interesting yeah calibrated that was the word i was looking for that's exactly it um my, my other questions are is, is there any difference here in terms of either gender, age, or cultural difference? Or does this seem to be just true of, 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 of everybody? Uh, yeah, so there are some, uh, some studies showing that maybe in males this effect is a little bit stronger than in females, but some other studies don't find this effect. If there is anything, I would say that this difference would be very, very tiny. Mm. Uh, what was actually the most spectacular finding... Uh, was that uh, that reading direction and let's say cultural experience of different directional let's say activities are playing a role and here there was one study testing people in Canada so English or French speakers I'm not sure which part of Canada it was but it doesn't matter so much both French and English speakers read both uh, text and numbers from left to right mm-hmm. Then the other group uh, tested were Hebrew speakers. And in Hebrew, as uh, you probably know, people read from uh, right to left. But on the other hand, the numbers are written as in Western cultures from from left to right. Right, okay. And the third group uh, was uh, Arab speakers. And in Arabic uh, language, both numbers and text are written from left to uh, from right to left. I see. Okay, yes. And then those using this right to left script uh, tended to have reversed uh, effects. So they were faster with left uh, hand to large numbers and with right hand to sm- small numbers. <laughs> but again, uh, now it's getting a little bit more confusing because more and more uh, time, especially studies conducted in Israel, show, let's say, regular left-to-right mapping. Uh, but here we have a big problem uh, in a sense of like who is being tested. In Israel, uh, usually people who take part in such experiments are students and and these students are so much embedded, so to say, into uh, English culture and so on. They are like super familiar with English script yes. and they are highly bilingual. So then you don't know whether that you don't find this this effect or you find it, let's say, English-like. It's because it's really like this in their, uh, in, 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 in Israelis, in Hebrew speakers. Or it's because they are bilingual and they handle English very, very well. These are yeah, these are university students, so they just have to be. 
like almost at the native speaker level as regards their skills in English. So, ah, that makes sense. And and, and what what about age? Does that change things at all? Uh yeah. So, uh, it seems that people with age get this uh, effect a little bit stronger, and this is because. Like one explanation is that it's because they are just like embedded for a longer time in, uh, let's say, the culture. Even like looking at graphs or things like that, the the x-axis goes with small numbers on the on the left and then yes. progresses towards right. If you have whatever, even like biological evolution graphs, you would see like this, let's say, like new, let's say, forms of evolution are also like this progress is also depicted from left to right. Yes. There's Australopithecus and then like different like subspecies of, 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 of humans, like our ancestors, they are also like depicted as if they were like walking from, from left to right. Uh, however, in, uh, in cultures uh, like Israel or in Arab languages, these uh, these diagrams and so on are kind of oriented the other way around. So this progression would be depicted from right to left. That's interesting. So, well, I, I guess my question is, are we, well, are, are you and people researching this, you're pretty sure that this is, it's a, it's, it's a cultural or, or it, it's not a genetic thing is is that is that right uh, there's yeah. no evolutionary reason why people would see smaller numbers in the uh, left space yeah well like all the things i told you now is like yeah well you have reading direction you have yeah. whatever all these things but <laughs> but there is one group uh in uh in italy investigating numerical cognition and like number processings in newly hatched chicken like take a chicken that just got got out of egg and <laughs> they somehow they have like very clever let's say uh procedures to check if the uh chicken like counts from left to right <laughs> <laughs> you can have to tell how christoph how uh, it? <laughs> yeah so the, the first experiment was actually really uh really clever to me and it's not strictly the the, the snark effect but just like counting direction so if you uh if you have a let's say box into which you put the chicken and then you have a row of like a small holes in the in the floor that the yeah. chicken can get some 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 food in one of them right uh, okay yeah, so yeah. for instance uh you put the chicken into the box and then it sees like a sagittally in front of itself whatever like 10 holes and then it learns that in the third one from the entrance, it finds something to eat. So then the chicken quite quickly learns to go to the third one. Okay. But keep in mind that it like enters the room by seeing and seeing it's like a row of them in front of itself. Yeah. And then in the next stage, what they did was actually, oh yeah, and then the box is kind of, other than these holes, it's empty. It doesn't have any other, let's say, visual cues which would help the chick, the chicken to, to navigate. So it's okay. just like white walls around. And then what they did was actually inserting the chicken not in the uh, from the side that it could see it sagittally from in front of itself, but 
it could see it as a line of these of these holes from left to right. And okay. then you can check where the chicken goes, whether where the chick goes, whether it goes to the third one from the left side or third one from the right side. <laughs> right, okay. And the crazy thing is that it quite consistently went to the one from the left side. <laughs> this is this is blowing my mind. So, and this is a newly hatched chicken. Yes. And he's, and the chicken's counting from left to right. Yes, and they, they even also made a ref they or I also I can make a reference to philosophy that it's like really the tabula rasa, very good, uh, very good, uh, very good example of the blank slate. Like the chick doesn't have any experience with whatever directions and so on. It just gets out of the egg and then it goes through this training to 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 learn the task and suddenly starts counting from left to right. So. <laughs> So what, why? Because I, again, I, I know nothing about this kind of stuff, Christoph, and, and my knowledge of, of evolution is, is is very sketchy at best. But why why would both chickens and humans be kind of predisposed to count from from left to right? Yeah, well, this is actually a great question, and we have a strong debate about it whether this preference we observed in humans uh, is something uh, is the same or originates from the same mechanism that the one in chicks. So uh, first of all, you have sort of uh, like brain asymmetries uh, determining action make some sense, so to say, uh, in a sense of like navigating. For instance, imagine you have a uh, you uh, you have a predator just coming from like front of you, and then you need to decide where to where to escape. If you don't have any, let's say, biases or preferences about the attention, you would you could be just let's say like quote-unquote confused and you don't know where to go, right? Or when yeah. you are like running, trying to escape from, from someone chasing you and you see like two streets, then if you don't have any like bias, so to say, then you would be just like, okay, where to go? And yes. this kind of theory, and now I'm simplifying it a bit, but would help kind of guiding your action. So such, uh, such biases are evolutionarily useful. Why it's that they are like in this direction of the other one, it's really hard to say. But what is important here when we are building these analogies between like humans and chicks, we say, okay, wow, it's like from left to right in chicks. Oh, wow. And it's in, from left to right in humans. But, well, hold on. We have only two options possible in that case. <laughs> And we say, wow, because it's the same. But we would also say, wow, it, if it was the opposite. And we would it as a pattern, right? So, <laughs> so this is also kind of argument that maybe these, these mechanisms are, uh, are just by co coincidence going in the same direction. And like you have 50% chances of, of having it because there are only two, two options available, right? Well, let, let, it just remind me, and apologies, Christopher, I know you, you, you mentioned this before, but let me just make sure I've got my got this the right way around in my head. So in in cultures where we read both numbers and just text from left to right, we have this this bias for, for small numbers we see on, on the left of space and, and larger numbers on the right of space. Just remind me, what, what was the finding um, in cultures where they read both from right to left and have numbers right to left. Did, did it go the opposite way around? Yeah, so when uh, when everything goes from right to left, it seems that the effect is reversed. 
And I actually forgot to say it explicitly. In, uh, in this one study with Canadians, Israeli, Hebrew speakers, and Arabs, the Israeli, the Hebrew speakers did not reveal the, uh, the effect at all. Like they didn't have this bias either from left to right or from right to left. And the authors explain it that uh, that probably this like opposing directions somehow cancel each other out. Uh, yes. Well, my, my my question is, if this chicken was born somewhere else, would it would it be because the chicken was in Italy, right? Is that yeah. is that right? So, so if this chicken is born in an Arabic nation. I, is the chicken reading counting from right to left as well? I have no clue. It's <laughs> <laughs> bizarre, Christoph. This isn't yeah. it. Well, like here, the explanation is it's rather just about the just about the uh, like brain asymmetries, and then I would suspect that there are no let's say uh, genetic uh, differences in brain asymmetries between uh, chicken in like Western versus Arabic countries. Right. But it's of course an empirical question. Wow, there's a study. Flipping it, right? Jeez. Well, okay. Well, let, let's come to the well. Yeah, let, let's come to the big questions then. So you've outlined two two fascinating studies there. We've got the one with the left space and the right space, and then we've we've also got this 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 phenomenon. This it seems to be harder to compare the magnitude of numbers when they're where they're closer together than when they're they're further apart, even in as you say, mathematicians. So what are the implications here, Christoph? So if we've got we've if we've got teachers listening to this, is is there anything that they can take with them into the classroom? Is there, is there anything for, for for teachers to to grasp onto here from this? Uh, yeah, this is actually the very very difficult question here because as I said, like the it's all cool when it comes into lab in lab experiments and discovering these principles, but. Uh, to be honest, the links between the, the snark effect, so left, uh, smaller, right, larger, and math skills is at the best puzzling. So my PhD was basically mostly a challenge of the claim that, that it's related. <laughs> I was arguing that it's not except very uh, special groups, so to say. So, so far in adults, the state of the art is that in individuals who are uh, who are having some math difficulties, like maybe like dyscalculia or so, like serious problems with math, with arithmetics, they seem to have this effect stronger. Mathematicians, professional mathematicians, whom we also tested, seem not to have this effect. But when it comes to, let's say, like typical level of math skills, you either don't see a relation with the snark or it's very very small but it tends to be like better math skill smaller effect like smaller the, the mapping but then the crazy thing comes if you look at studies with children because there you also have some studies showing that there was no effect but if there are studies in children showing that there was a link of of math skill of mathematical skills and the snark it was rather the other way around so the kids who were good in math have a stronger effect than those who were uh, who were uh, having some some math difficulties so wait a minute so you're making me think hard here Christoph so so in in mathematicians in kind of adult mathematicians this snark this this left for smaller and right for bigger this snark effect 
seems to be very small or, yeah. or, or not, not there at all. If you have dyscalculia um, or math difficulties, it seems to be a larger effect. Yes, in adults. In adults, <laughs> but then in children, it seems to be the relationship between kind of maths achievement or maths knowledge seems to be the more knowledgeable you are, the greater the effect that this yes. this. Right. Well, why, why, why is that, Krista? I, I actually uh, tried to build some uh, some theoretical model trying to explain it. But also what we need to keep in mind is that that actually this uh, this effect, uh, we also observe really lots of so-called null results in a sense that, that we find no difference. Uh, this uh, professional mathematician study we did in uh, some years ago, and it was like published in 2016. It shows that professional mathematicians don't have this effect, and we tried to explain it in the sense that okay, but professional mathematicians are not handling uh, so much with numbers in the end. They are mostly yes. uh, mostly operating on some symbols, formulas, theorems, and then like arithmetic is actually not their domain anymore, I would mm. say. Uh, the effect uh, actually was present in, uh, in professional engineers. So we had like one more group there who was like doing PhD, also very close to getting the, the doctorate in kind of engineering uh, faculties. So they are using very advanced math on their everyday, on an on everyday basis, but at the same time, it's not their main focus. And they are probably also doing it in a more applied way, not handling with like yes. symbols and theorems, but rather kind of using it to solve some more, let's say, practical problems. Uh, yeah, so we found this, but uh, this year we uh, we published with a colleague from uh, from China a paper on the snark effect in uh, gifted children in China. This is actually really, uh, I would say, crazy uh, crazy group <laughs> considering uh, considering the uh, how selective and how hard it is for the kids to. Uh, to get into this like gifted children uh, special curriculum, like to, to, to me it was what, in, um, in, unimaginable. It's what like, age? Are, what age are they, Chris? Um, so early elementary school. So like we have, I guess, grades three, four, and five. But the just to give you a glimpse, the selection is that basically you have area with where around thirty million people lives, and then like parents are applying that their children are enrolled into this class and this like gifted curriculum is enrolling maybe each year around 120 kids wow out of area where 30 million people live and they wow. have probably it's harder to get there than to get a um, like high level position in uh, in google or or somewhere <laughs> i would say <laughs> Uh, and and sorry, just remind me the, the ages in terms of ye, um, kind of ye, years old because I struggle with grades and stuff. But what roughly what age would they be? Around ten, if I remember that. Ten, correctly. fantastic. Right. Okay. Okay. And go on. Tell me about this snark effect then. With yeah. This so group. actually, this group revealed very robust effect in the sense that the effect was there, and also it didn't differ from the uh, from the snark effect uh, in their peers who were not enrolled in the special curriculum. So. So it's also kind of puzzling that 
if there was anything on the side of like high math skills uh, relating to uh, to the snarking children, we should have found it there. Like you can fa- hardly find kids who are like more skilled and more mm. proficient uh, in math at this age, like <laughs> anywhere, I would say. Yes. Uh, so we tried to somehow explain this uh, this puzzling finding in uh, in a sort of theoretical model, and then it like what is kind of I think interesting there, and then maybe also relevant for the uh, for the teachers to understand how complicated it is is that like the snark effect first to 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 find it. Like that, that that you can observe it. Like the entry level, so to say, is that you need to really automatically process the magnitude of numbers. Because if you, mm. if I present you some numbers written in whatever script that you don't know, then probably like nothing would be there because you have just no clue what it means. Yes, of course, it doesn't. Uh, go let's say in the zero to one fashion that you either know don't know or like know and process it automatically so you need to kind of build your proficiency as with reading like you have a word and at the beginning you have no clue what it means then you can like um, kind of put the letters together when you learn to read and then you can after some considerations and thought you can think of meaning of this and then if you just read a word uh in the, in your first language or in the second language where you are quite proficient, then it doesn't cost you anything and it just happens, right? Oh, so let me see if I've, I've let me see if I've got my head around this, Christoph. Yeah. So is is it almost like almost kind of like like a like a bell curve or something where in terms of kind of knowledge and where this snark effect appears? So if if you don't understand numbers at all, then if you're not you're not going to have this you're not going to observe this yeah the snark effect whereas if you if you don't even have to give them any attention whatsoever if it's so automatic to you do you have no snark effect there as well or very small is it uh, just kind of in the middle where mm-hmm. you're you're knowledgeable about numbers so you you recognize them but you have to give them a little bit of attention is that it or have i missed it no actually i meant, <laughs> I, I meant that like the let's say entry level for this would be this i would say like super automatic processing because mind that the task is parity judgment right so you are you are not forced to think of the magnitude itself in the task at all right right okay, so then okay. like according to this idea that that we outlined it's rather that that it should be super strongly automated that you like you see it and it just like kind of evokes the meaning if you're in your mind uh, automatically right yes but then like from processing of the number you still have a uh, uh, but you need to associate it with space because there are some research also this let's say hardcore cognitive psychology things that it's possible to evoke some number processing without this special component so it's not like super let's say mandatory in some mm. conditions you can make it that it's that it's not linked to space so there are these processes and we believe that these can be somehow linked to math skills in a sense that uh yeah it can be helpful to somehow use some 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 maps to uh like mental maps let's say to to like anchor some numbers here and there and so on but on the other hand also flexibility is useful 
sometimes to, to yes. doing math. And then there is like one more thing which happens at the, <clears throat> like if you, when you already associate the, the numbers with the space, then if you think of the brain or of the mind as a sort of device, which, <clears throat> sorry, which needs to be uh, efficient, and you, you, you think of it that, yeah, well, okay, but this snark thing, like slowing down, down responses here uh, doesn't make sense. It doesn't help you solve the problem, right? You are just mm -hmm. telling odd even. So then if you think of, let's say, the most efficient system that could like do the parity judgment, such a system just shouldn't bother about this magnitude at all and about linking this magnitude to... Uh, to, to space even further, right? Because it just distracts you from the task that you are supposed to do by pressing like uh, keyboard keys when you, when you see whether the number is odd or even, right? Yes. And then the trick comes that this ability to somehow suppress the, uh, let's say, mental processing of information which is not necessary, so-called inhibition, it's also quite strongly linked to intelligence. So like intelligent people in general can, let's say, also quite well manage their, let's say, mental resources. They can allocate it properly. They can focus on the things uh, that they are supposed to do at the moment, right? And they are less easily distract distracted. Mm. So then they are just like making their, let's say, brain, mind, the most efficient possible, right? So then it seems that, okay, maybe if being good in math is somehow related to linking numbers and space and so on, but also uh, like math proficiency is also usually quite strongly linked to, let's say, general intelligence. And also you can expect that rather intelligent people uh, should have this inhibition mechanism quite, let's say, efficient. Quite like they, they, these, these, this inhibition should work very well in these people. So in the end, you have sort of contradictory influences, right? Yes, yes. That linking space to numbers, okay, this can be linked to better skill, but also the inhibition should be also somehow indirectly also linked to math skill. And then the snark effect in, in, this, in this idea is some sort of like a mixture of the, or the, let's say, the result of the, of the three factors of automatic number processing, of mapping space to numbers, and also to inhibition. And you don't see, let's say, by looking at the snark, you don't see which of these was the strongest yes. one. Yes. And then if you see just the, the, the resultant, if you, like I tried to think of it in terms of like when we in elementary school draw how forces in physics work that you that you can like draw the resultant, so to say. Yes, yes. And then if you have like a resultant, then uh, like you can obtain the same resultant from a different mixture, right? Yeah, of course, yes. 
So this is my take on it as for now. Whether it's correct, I have no clue, but... <laughs> Jeez, we'd need to ask the chicken as well, wouldn't we? What, yeah. What's going on? <laughs> but they are also quite proficient in uh, in mental arithmetics. Uh, <laughs> oh, tell me so. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, there are like super cute studies uh, where the chicken, uh, maybe, hmm, maybe to start with... Uh, uh, you probably uh, know the uh, Winnie the Pooh uh, cartoon. Yep. And there was this uh, small blue bird who like happened to hatch from the egg when uh, when the rabbit was around. Okay. And then this this bird somehow considered rabbit as the as its mom. Right. Okay. Yeah. Phenomenon yep. Uh, actually really exists in uh, biology. It's called imprinting. So the first object that the, the bird sees after like hatching from the egg, it's kind of considered as I don't know whether mother, but something to follow. Yes. Uh, so in these studies, uh, and yeah, and chicks are kind of social animals, so they want to hang around with their friends. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, it's maybe a little bit sad, but what they used to somehow imprint to the chicks are the inner parts of the Kinder Surprise. So these yellow eggs that you find in the Kinder Surprise. Yeah. And then like chicks like tend to follow this, uh, this these uh, yellow eggs. <laughs> so, um, I can pro- provide you a link to Vimeo, a Vimeo video about it. Maybe the listeners can just watch it when they, when they wish to. Uh, and uh, it's like the chick is just follow is just observing whether like how many of these eggs were put into uh, behind like one let's say um, small wall so like <laughs> two go here three go here but yeah. then one of those three is moved from the one from one to the other yeah and then the chick is like released and it can go to like selected place and the chicks really go there uh, to the place where there are like more this this eggs hidden, <laughs> so it seems that they really did some sort of mental arithmetic. <laughs> and I'm I'm happy to provide link with the with the video, and it it's really funny. Jeez, I d- I didn't think we'd be talking chickens quite so much here, Christoph. This is this is fascinating. This uh, let me just let me ask you uh, just. Uh, about the the other study that you mentioned, or the the other other area of research, this um, about the numbers being close to each other in magnitude being easier, to, uh, being more difficult to compare, or more time consuming than numbers uh, further apart. Again, is there any implication for teachers for for that? Do you think? Hmm. Yeah. Well, like I think, um, what would be maybe not from the research itself, but from the from the knowledge on how numbers are kind of represented in the mind that that they are not a sort of let's say separate entities in a sense but they are really processed in the or represented in the mind in a mind in a manner which is kind of similar on how we represent like physical objects in terms of weight mm. in terms of in terms of whatever length or so, this can maybe provide some um, some um, some insights on how to how to explain the numbers and also, like I think, and this is also what several studies show, that using this 
let's say, geometrical representations of numbers, like number lines and so on, is like building building blocks, let's say, on how to compose the number, that this understanding is, is really, really helpful. And, and it can also, uh, let's say, help the teachers understand the role of like not only providing the uh, the correct response when when the child is doing some arithmetic problems, but also like what kinds of mistakes are made and so on. It's maybe not directly going from my research, but from research in numerical cognition, also the role of estimation, like that uh, that maybe if you see that the the child, especially for addition problems, gives like results which are wrong and they are like really really far away from the correct mm. one that some that it means something else than if they are just missing by one or two ah. i don't know whether that makes sense so it's uh, let me see if i've got this right this is very interesting would um so if it was missing by a lot would that suggest quite perhaps a, a fundamental misconception as opposed to maybe they've made a little mistake if it's just missing by kind of one or two would that would that be it or is it something yeah. different Yeah this is this is what i meant that 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 this would kind of especially for for additions uh, mm. and subtractions that would mean that there might be some problem so to say with the uh, with the with the understanding of numbers because for multiplication it's like okay yeah maybe uh, especially if you have like multiplications of multi-digit numbers then yes kind of okay to, to to make a mistake by the order of magnitude because you just make some some mistake in the algorithm yes. but for additions uh, that you are kind of uh, like easy to accept that whatever. Uh, 12 plus uh, 12 plus 17 uh, equals 96 um, mm. then it means that this let's say basic understanding maybe needs some um, some support or maybe it also be linked to some uh, some uh, learning difficulties that like I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that it directly implies it but it would need some uh in my view at least some some more focus than seeing that the, the mistake was by one or two that's really interesting that christoph that's that's something that i've i've thought a lot about this this difference between mistakes and misconceptions and whether well whether there is a difference and whether they should be dealt with in different ways and yeah that's that's a really interesting one the, the way i kind of make the distinction is if is if the child repeats it again and again and again, it's, or if you, if you, if a child's made an error and you say to the child, just, just check your work there. If they, if they can recognize that it, that it's wrong and correct it, it's, it's probably more likely to, I'm going to classify that as a, that as a mistake, as opposed to if they look at it and can't see the problem, that suggests to me that there's something fundamental there. And that's interesting that to, to think in terms of addition, the, the, the distance away from the actual correct answer and a child not being able to get a, a sense that that can't be the right answer may suggest something more fundamental. That's, that's very interesting that Christoph. Um, my other, my other question was going to be, would this be suggesting then, you mentioned number lines, but would this be suggesting that um, different representations of numbers would be really important, whether they be physical objects like cubes and counters and so on? Would would that help students with um, with just getting this, this just this better sense of number? 
Yeah, well, like this is what what studies in numerical cognition show, and mm -hmm. based on my uh, my reading of the literature, I think it's a really good idea to have this multiple representations, so to say, and also just training some forms of uh, flexibility of switching between one and the other, mm -hmm. and then like. My feeling is, and it's not only within numerical cognition, but within, let's say, any other, let's say, domain of knowledge, if you have like a better conceptual understanding of what is what and how one translates to the other, when this this like knowledge is getting more and more coherent, you are more skillful and efficient in let's say, applying this knowledge to uh, to novel problems and so on. So this, let's say, deep understanding of whatever numbers, not only just solely memorizing that uh, 7 plus 2 equals 9, but that you can whatever, like, build this uh, this uh, with whatever, like, fingers, uh, some, like, blocks or whatever, like an abacus or, like, anything like that that you... That you really have this this feeling that that this abstract notation like seven plus two equals nine has kind of a clear correspondence to physical objects. For some kids, it's, it's obvious, of course, but for some of them, it may not be. And and these kids uh, where I where who who think that okay, I should just need to learn that seven plus two equals nine, and that's it. Uh, this can be kind of a uh, a uh, uh, problem and also preventing them from from learning new things that's very interesting very interesting um just before we move on to a reflection and then your big three christoph is there anything else from your um your areas of research that you think the listeners should know about anything we haven't covered yeah well like i'm uh, working on the space number associations but the other topic that i'm also working on and i think one of colleagues would also be discussing it here a little bit is the mathematics anxiety so oh yes we had yeah one of your colleagues uh, talked to me about that yeah a couple of episodes ago that's right yeah so i'm also working in this field a little bit uh, now maybe a little bit more and uh yeah this one i think has uh like much uh much more uh direct so to say applications in the uh, in education so yeah this was just to mention it but if you covered it in other episodes then maybe maybe we can just uh just continue because it's like very big topic so <laughs> it is yes it certainly certainly is um okay christopher well, let, let's move on to your reflections then so what's an example of something important that you've changed your mind about yeah, well, uh, I think uh, that, uh, that the most important part in this space number associations that I uh, that I'm mostly working in is just that we need more fine fine grained analysis, so to say, and and really uh, really uh, kind of. Uh, seeking agreement at the very basic level, for instance, how we specify these space number associations, because this uh, this really uh, <laughs> there are really lots of misconceptions there, and several people speak about just different things by by discussing space number associations. So, like we were mostly discussing this so-called implicit ones that that you just like do the the parity judgment or or so, and then you observe the response pattern. But this space number association can also be that when uh, what you observe when you ask 
children to, 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 to estimate something on the number line, for instance, or or if you just want uh, people to whatever count objects which are like arranged in the in, in a row, and then you just ask them and see whether they count from left to right or from right to left. So, uh, and for a long time, uh, all these were considered as more or less like the same space and numbers, right? But but it seems that it really uh, really differs not only as regards let, let's say the nature of this this phenomenon that sometimes you just ask people directly to to do something uh, to to somehow arrange numbers in a, in a space, and sometimes it's that uh, that you just observe this as a response time or response accuracy pattern or something like this. And then also when trying to move this these insights into education, we need to really go into the like deeper level, so to say, and really check which of them are relevant and which of them are not. These trainings on number line estimation seem to be quite relevant and helpful to get this, this understanding that I uh, that I told before, like the deeper deeper impression of what this whatever additions mean or where this number seven is in relation to 10 or, or or stuff like that this is way more helpful and way more straightforward to apply than just whatever uh trying to like force using the snark in education right hmm. again christoph you've 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 blown my mind with this uh, again normally i have a bit of a sense of what's coming up in a, in a conversation but i i didn't see all this coming and it's it's interesting as well when, when you first started talking to me about it i was i was thinking well how can i get this in the classroom but as you say it's it's not about that it's not about forcing a research finding into the classroom it's about thinking about it more generally and, and where can we build from that and what is going to then be relevant and make a difference to to, to teachers that, that's fascinating yeah and um, so to wrap things up then christoph it's time for me to hand over to you for your big three so can you just talk listeners through your choice of either websites blog posts or books and i'll put links to each of these on the show notes page uh yeah sure so like the first one is a sort of uh mathematics and also numerical cognition indiana jones book uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh it's uh it's a book uh, by george ifrach you probably know you might know it you might know it, the uh, universal history of numbers. I know. I've, I've never come across this one. Listeners uh, may have done. So this is really amazing. George Ifrach was a math mathematics teacher in elementary school. Um, he liked the, the job, but uh, at the same time, he got several, on one hand, super naive questions from kids, but also the ones that uh, that he couldn't answer. So for instance, kids were asking, where does the zero come from? Or some other stuff like that. And then he actually dropped uh, his job as a teacher and then traveled for whatever, like five years or so across the world, visiting some museums, archives and stuff like that. And he tries to, let's say, tries to build, let's say, like history of, of humankind from a perspective of how they were handling numbers. At the same time, he was working as the attendant of the parking lot and so on in order to somehow support himself during this during this uh, this journey. The book is something like two thousand pages, and it describes everything from like whatever uh, some some cave paintings in like very very 
early times of, of Homo sapiens through Babylon, through India, China, uh, like Arabic mathematicians, uh, like basically everything. It's 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 really amazing. Uh, it's really amazing book. He also hosted, I think, a show in French television about it. So it's it's really kind of Indiana Jones of a, of a teacher who just like drops <laughs> the, the stuff and travels across the world to learn where the numbers come from. So that sounds a brilliant choice. I'll definitely be snapping that one up. That's, that's fantastic. Uh, what, what have you gone for second? Uh, the second one is actually, I think, very timely uh, book, uh, The Rules of Contagion by uh, Adam Kucharski. Uh, it was uh, it, it's it's very new book. I think it was out in June or July this year. And uh, uh, Adam Kucharski is a mathematician who works as uh, who works in uh, the field of like epidemiology. So he works in uh, his his job is modeling uh, spread of diseases using mathematical models. And in this book, he just describes. Uh, how contagion works. And it's not only about um, diseases like COVID, measles, AIDS, but also about, um, but he also shows that the same rules of mathematical modeling, so going like beyond the surface level of the problem and trying to somehow explain the things in mathematical terms can also help you to understand how uh, information spread across social media, some memes, some challenges. He, he, he calculates the R number that we are now discussing in terms of COVID for the ice bucket challenge. <laughs> uh, the, same, uh, the same principles can be applied also for economic crisis, how this propagated across like financial institutions. Um, so social media, so uh, diseases, uh, the banking but also spread of uh, of gun violence which can also be uh like modeled using the same uh, the same instruments so this book is like first of all very timely these days but at the same time it also shows how going uh like beyond the the surface whether it's like getting likes on twitter whether it's like financial crisis whether it's spread of of zika virus somewhere or whether it's whatever ice bucket challenge that using the same mathematical principles, you can model them all and you can get some insights about how they develop and how they stop. Uh, yeah. Wow. Flipping out. Another good choice. And what about number three? Uh, number three is also quite recent book by Andreas Nieder, uh, A Brain for Numbers. And this is more or less the book on numerical cognition, very new one, uh, also showing some research about how different, uh, not only humans, but also different uh, different uh, species of, of animals, uh, how they handle numbers. Uh, yeah, very, very, very new book. And Andreas Nieder is also like a very big expert in, uh, in this domain. Fantastic. Well, there'll be links to each of those on the uh, on the show notes page. Well, I'll tell you what, Christoph, this has been an absolute pleasure. This uh, it was an area I knew absolutely nothing about. You've blown my mind with uh, with those experiments. I didn't see the chicken coming into play as well, but that was absolutely fascinating stuff. Uh, and I know listeners will really have enjoyed that one. So, Christoph, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Have a good time.
So there you have it. There was my interview with Christoph. I hope you enjoyed that one. I had a great time speaking to him. Um, it, it amazes me the type of research that goes on. And I'll be honest with you, um, it's it's been interesting do, doing this series and um, speaking to people who are kind of at the cutting edge of, of mathematical um, education research. We've spoken about cognitive load theory. We've spoken about um, algebra, understanding algebra better. Loads of different things throughout the previous seven episodes. But this is the first time that I've really felt that some some research that has properly blown my mind has, has been going on. So I had no idea about this, that, that people kind of see numbers differently on, on different sides, left or right, depending on their, their relative size and how that changes with different cultures and so on. That blew my mind. And the chat about the different magnitude of numbers and the effect that has on things like estimation, that blew my mind. And then if that wasn't enough, out come the chickens and they're, they're counting and, and that blew my mind. And it's just what a fun job this is. And by, by no means am I saying that the job of a researcher is dead, dead easy or anything like that. God, God almighty, not, not at all. But how much fun must that be to, um, to be devising studies like this, to be making predictions, to be getting results and then trying to explain them. And then it's it's the job of, of, of people like me to hopefully ease that transition from, from research to what it means in terms of actual classroom practice. So yeah, I, I just thought this conversation was, was fascinating and, and I, had a, I had a load of fun doing it. Um, so just a couple of takeaways, I'll make this brief. And um, firstly, this has once again highlighted something that's been on my mind for a while, and that's the importance to, to make number work a lot less abstract. Now, I've been guilty of this, and I think this is my curse as a secondary teacher, that by the time students come to me at, at age 11, I assume that they're pretty kind of competent when it comes to the basics of, of number and arithmetic and so on. And I think as a result of that, I tend to teach number work in the way that I see it, which is pretty abstract. Like when I'm doing three plus five, I'm not thinking of three objects and five objects. I'm, I'm just... I just, I'm just automatically recalling it. It's a very abstract concept to me. It's only whenever I'm forced to stop and pause and think about how to how to visualize it, how to represent it, that that, that, that ever happens, that ever occurs to me. And I think that's been a failing of, of my teaching. And it's only when I speak to people like Christoph and then also to early years practitioners like Dr. Helen Williams, who's been on the show a couple of times, that I realize just the skill of a teacher and the skill and the importance of, Helping, teach, helping students see things not as quite as abstract as that and, and different representations. And I'll never forget when, when Helen was on the show first time and she, she was talking to me about what is three. And I didn't know what the flipping extra was going on about. How three is like a something that you count up to, one, two, three. It's also a number of objects. It's also a concept. It was blowing my mind, this kind of stuff. So I'm really trying to bring this more into my teaching. I think whenever I think about visualizations and, and representations in mathematics, I'm always thinking about like diagrams in geometry, trying to bring geometry topics to life. And I think that's because geometry is a weakness of mine. I've, I've spoke about this before. I, I find it hard to visualize things. So whenever I teach geometry topics, particularly things in 3D, I'm always on the lookout for different ways to represent it because I realize that I need that to help me understand it better. So I kind of empathize better with my students who also struggle. But in terms of things that I'm pretty strong at, like number and algebra, 
I think I teach that quite poorly because I, I understand it well. I see it quite in the abstract. So I've been really trying to make an effort now to, to bring different representations into, into much of my teaching across all the different areas of mathematics. Now that may be uh, things like using manipulatives or using uh, Jonathan Hall's wonderful MathSpot website to use some virtual manipulatives, some, some visualizations there. It may even be things like, um, I'm a bit obsessed with prime factor tiles at the moment, just to make something like prime factors more visual, more tangible, and so on and so forth. So the importance of making numbers less abstract for, for students of of, of all levels of development, no, of all levels of mathematical experience, I think is, is super, super important. And the other thing that, that Christoph's conversation uh, got me thinking about, aside from chickens, and I used to have a couple of chickens, I should say, Matilda and Zoe, um, when I was a little boy, I never thought to, to get them involved in a maths experiment. Well, what a missed opportunity that was. But the, the second and final thing I wanted to talk about was something that, again, I'm a little bit obsessed with, and that's, that's the difference between a, a mistake and a misconception. There was a debate about this on, on Twitter recently, and people can get quite quite heated on all things on Twitter, I guess, but particularly when it when it's concerning definitions in education and, and their implication for, for the classroom practice. I've always had the opinion that, that, firstly, it's definitely not black and white. It's very difficult to label this is a misconception and this is a mistake. But if you were looking for a distinction, um, I always revert back to um, if I see a child has made an error, if I say to them, have a look, I think you've made a mistake. If Oh, sorry, have a look, I think you've got that wrong. If they can easily correct it, I'm more likely to think this is a mistake. And if they are struggle to correct it, I'm more likely to think that this is a misconception. I think that's a fairly useful distinction um, for me. And it's, it's, it's really interesting because um, mistakes, whilst they're easier for students to correct, I think they're harder to stop um, to help students out with it as a teacher. All we can, can kind of do is instill practices in our kids that help them remember the importance of checking things. Um, but everyone's going to make these silly mistakes, whereas misconceptions are suggest a fundamental an error in thinking or a, a different way of thinking, a different way of perceiving things, they're things that we, we, we can influence as teachers by the way we, we teach things. And if we can unearth these using things like diagnostic questions, I think we can get to the bottom of it. But it, speaking to Christoph made me realise that if a student does something like an addition problem um, or even a subtraction problem and their answer is of a, of a completely implausible magnitude, so there's some kind of place place value error going on here. It's it's ten or a hundred or a thousand times too big or too small. That's probably going to suggest to me now a misconception as opposed to an arithmetic slip, because of the research that Christoph's done, in terms of thinking about estimations and how humans have a have a good perception of the magnitude of things and so on. Again, I'm I'm not entirely sure what what the implications of, of that is, knowing that something's a mistake versus a misconception, but I just get a feeling if if we know that there's a kind of a faulty reasoning going on there, we're in a position of a teacher to to help often with different visualizations, different ways of looking at things. Whereas if it's just a careless error, aside from saying to students, just you know be a bit more careful with that they're, they're quite hard to hard to weed out and hard to hard to stop students making them anyway um as i said i really really enjoyed this conversation with christoph i, I hope you enjoyed it can't believe we've only got two more episodes to go now we're, we're nearly at the end we've got a couple of crackers lined up uh, beth's coming on next to speak 
about uh, doing PhDs, uh, doing a PhD uh, in education, in maths education. It's a fascinating conversation. Then it all builds up to the big one, Dave Hewitt, to, to finish off the series. As I say, I really hope you're enjoying this one. Uh, give us a shout out if you are on Twitter, and I'll look to do something like this, uh, hopefully in the future, although this nearly finished me off this, doing uh, 10 of these back to back in such a short period of time. But I've enjoyed it, but I think I'll need a little break after this. But anyway, uh, thanks again to Christoph for giving up his time to, to speak to us. Thanks to Dr. Colin Foster for helping us uh, put this series together. Podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music you've heard throughout the show. And you, my lovely loyal listener, for keeping on tuning in. You take care of yourselves, look after your loved ones, and bye for now. Mm-hmm.